This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Newman. Jonathan, who is a graduate of Cambridge University and the London School of Economics, has written for various American, British, and Israeli publications, was the Tikva Fellow at Commentary Magazine, and has served as the assistant editor at Jewish Ideas Daily. He is the author of To Heal the World, How the Jewish Left Corrupts Judaism and Endangers Israel. Jonathan, thank you for coming on The Rabbi's Husband. It's great to be with you, Mark. Thanks for having me. And so your chosen passage is uh, Numbers 14.22. So please tell us what happens in Numbers 14.22 and why it's important to you. Great. Well, the verse itself, and I'll come into the context in just a moment, but just so you know, our listeners uh, understand what we're talking about, the verse itself says, all those men who have seen my glory and my signs, which, are, which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness, they have tested me these 10 times and have not hearkened to my voice. So, you know, what's going on here? You know, what's the context? So we're in the, in the second year since the children of Israel have left Egypt, and they're on the cusp of entering and conquering the promised land, the land of Israel. And Moses sends in 12 spies or scouts. These are tribal leaders. He sends them into the land of Israel to spy out the land uh, in advance of this conquest. And the spies, they do spy out the land, and they bring back, you know, the big grapes, and they return. And they all stand before the children of Israel to give a report of what they have seen. And 10 of them give a negative report. And they say that the children of Israel won't be able to conquer the land. And the people are very upset to hear this. You know, they've, they've traveled all the way from Egypt. They've gone through the sea. They've gone through everything. They've, they've got the, the, you know, the Ten Commandments and, and, and so on. And they're about to enter the land. And suddenly they're being told that, that this is going to be impossible. Um, the, the, the spies have gone out and say that we're not going to be able to do it. So they're very upset. They start weeping. They start complaining to Moses. And they say they want to return to Egypt. And uh, Moses and Aaron and two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they try to convince the people that they can, in fact, conquer the land and they shouldn't rebel against God. And the people are infuriated and they try to stone these leaders. Um, but God's glory appears and sort of interrupts the moment. And then Moses and God have an exchange. And in this exchange, God is furious. He wants to destroy the Israelites completely and build up a whole new Jewish people from Moses. But Moses says, if you do that, it's going to make you look bad, God. You know, that's going to make you look bad. Egypt is going to say that God couldn't actually take the Israelites into the land of Israel. So instead, he destroyed them all. Because, of course, it's going to take some time to build up a whole new people just from Moses. So instead, Moses asks God to forgive the people. He recites uh, this formula that he learned that God taught him back in the golden calf. And he recites this formula, and God agrees to forgive the people, but with a caveat. He says he's not going to permit any individual who has seen his wonders in Egypt enter the land of Israel, except for Moses and Aaron, but they too won't be able to enter for reasons later on that aren't in our passage. But they're the two exceptions, and also Joshua and Caleb, because they're the two dissenting spies. And the reason that God gives is that the children of Israel have tested him these 10 times. This is this is our verse. All those men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness, they have tested me these 10 times and they haven't 
hearkened uh, to my voice. And then, of course, the next verse goes on to say, therefore, they won't see the land that I promised to their forefathers. All those who despise me shall not see it. That is the verse. And that is our that is our context. Right. So what are these 10 tests that God is talking about? Terrific question. Now, there's a couple of questions here. The first is, well, how many tests actually were there? Right. Now, you kind of think, well, it's obvious. It says, you know, it says there were 10 tests. So obviously, there were 10 tests. There is an alternative opinion, which says that actually when it says 10, it really means at least 10. And, you know, 10 is just sort of a figurative kind of lots of tests. And actually, oh, so in that case, 10 would mean like, uh, in our parlance, uh, a ton or a million. Yeah, or, or dozens or, you know, whatever. You know, it's exactly, exactly like that. And the, the sort of the proof of that is um, back in Genesis 31, uh, when Jacob complains to Rachel and Leah that their father, Laban, Lavan, has changed Jacob's wages these 10 times, Asterit Monim. And there, Rashi, you know, the great 10th century commentator, there he interprets that as at least 10 times, plenty of times, basically. Um, and right, because they couldn't count 10 previous times. So it was a figure of speech for lots of. And it makes sense that 10 should be that, that number in ancient times or even our own. Exactly. So that's one view. But let's stick with the idea that there are actually 10, you know, 10 specific tests. So as you say, so what are they? And various Jewish commentators, the Talmud, the, uh, the medieval commentators, they all come up with lists you know, of, what these, of what these 10 tests are. So I'll give you one example. The Bartonura, as we call him, this is uh, Ovadia ben Avram of Bartonura, is a 15th century Italian rabbi. This is his list. I'll just go through it briefly. And it's a nice kind of uh, uh, sort of summary of some of the different things that we've seen over the, the preceding kind of couple of books in Exodus and, and, and Leviticus and into Numbers. So his first two tests are, are at the Sea of Reeds, you know, the sea that, that is divided. At the first point, the Israelites come up against the sea. Suddenly there's a sea in front of them. Pharaoh's chariots are chasing them. They're closed off and they start complaining to Moses. They say, what, you have to bring us here? Are there no graves in Egypt that we had to die here? So this is, he says, the first test. That's in Exodus 14. Then after the sea in Exodus 15, the waters of Marah, the bitter waters. And Marah literally means bitter. Um, they were complaining about what they're going to drink. So that's another test that he says. Then there's another one, Rufidim. They're also arguing with Moses over water. That's his third test. Then he's got another two in connection with the man, the manna. Uh, Moses says, don't go out over the Sabbath. Don't collect it over the Sabbath. Collect collect two portions on the Friday, don't go out on, on the Sabbath, on the Saturday to collect another portion. What do they do? They go out and collect again. So he says that's another test. And the other one with the manna is that Moses says, no man shall leave over from it, right? He tells them, don't leave any uh, manna to the next day because there's going to be more tomorrow. So don't worry about it. But of course, what do they do? They keep it. And, you know, as you're going through the list, it's really occurring to me, I, I think the right explanation is probably the first explanation, which is that it's a metaphor for a lot, because the Torah doesn't tell us everything that happened in the desert. Every event and every conversation over 40 years is not cataloged in the desert. But what we do know is that the Jews in the desert were a complaining people. We're complaining lots of times about lots of things and in, often in ridiculous ways, like you said, wanting to go back to Egypt. So it would make sense that it's, it's God's not listing out one, two, three, four, because there are probably 25,000 or more if you were actually to, to, do, to do the counting, being God who's om, omniscient. So he's probably saying, so God is saying, you've tested me all these times and therefore you're not going to get to go into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, 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 think, I, think that's, I think that's totally fair because any, in any event, all these different lists, you know, a slight, you know, have slight variations. There right. are clearly more than ten episodes, ten episodes here. So, so what does that mean about about the ten tests? Clearly, 
at a basic level that the, the, the test of the spies is somehow a culmination. And the very fact that we have this verse here that says you've tested me these 10 times in the episode of the spies. Exactly. Yeah, that this is somehow the 10th or whatever it is, the culmination of this. Right. And, and this is the sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's right. right. This is this is God is, is fed up. And but, but it, it, it's, it may not be the straw that broke the camel's back. It, it, it may be the most important event. It's like, all right, the entire purpose of this desert journey was to prepare you to go into the promised land and to create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and to to fulfill the covenant that I set with Abraham. That's effectively what God's saying. So he said, now go do it. So they sent 10, 12 uh, spies, really not spies, they're really scouts because they're leaders and you don't send men who are leaders and renowned as, they're not spies, they're scouts. They'd be found out pretty quickly if they were spies, if they're well-known. So it's scouts and this is what they failed. I mean, the entire point of this whole exercise from Exodus on was to create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the promised land. And God said, now go do it. And they totally blow it. So yeah. I think you're right. This is the culmination, but it's not the straw that broke the camel's back. It's not like just one more thing. This was the most important thing. Like if they had only done this, Dayenu, it may have been enough for them not to be able to go into the promised land. Because if you don't have the, the courage and the strength to follow God's directive to go set out the promised land, how are you going to do in the promised land? Not very well. So therefore God says, it's the next generation. It'll right. be their time also, in 38 years. And, and, and you see how fitting the punishment is, right? Because these are, you know, basically they've, they've, the 10 scouts have slandered the, uh, slandered the land of Israel. That's right. The people have believed them. So God says, well, you're obviously not worthy of, of going into it. So I no, will keep that. That's right. And generation. I think your language is exactly right. They slandered the land. They actually committed Lashon Hara against the land, which is a sin too. Now, interestingly, it says in 22, the, your passage, that all the men who have seen my glory, men being a gender term, excluding women, and that gets back to what I believe the Kli Yakar, the great, uh, I believe, 17th century rabbinic commentator, said about the spies or the scouts. And he said, because there it references men only, he said, if, this is 17th century, he said, if God, or if Moses, not God, if Moses had sent women, there would have been a different result. And that we see throughout the Bible that the great Zionists are usually the women. It's the daughters of Zelopakad, who they're the ones who say to Moses, to the elders, to the priests, literally to everybody, and ultimately to God, because Moses appeals to God. It's not just that we, because we're women, can't inherit. We want to settle the land of Israel too, because they love the land so much they weren't letting anything get in the way of them settling the land. And it was the five daughters who made that, made that uh, plea. There's something about Zionism that associates it in the Torah with the feminine virtue. And here, I think we see it again, is that, that all the men have failed. It's only the men who have failed. The women uh, weren't given the opportunity to claim the mantle of Zionism. And in the instances that they were, they rose to the occasion. And it's the men, for whatever reason, who seemingly fail when, not always, but often when given the instruction to go and settle the land. But it's the uh, women who have this commitment to the land of Israel that's sustained throughout uh, Exodus, Numbers, and repeated Deuteronomy. Yeah, and, and, and what's interesting is that this is not the only occasion where women excel and men fail. Um, you have it also with the Golden Cup, where Absolutely. You know, the Jewish tradition holds that the women didn't, you know, didn't get involved in that. And it, these are two very interesting incidents to kind of compare, because the Golden Calf, in its essence, is, is idolatry. And the spies is about uh, is about the centrality of the land. And if you're, you know, a kind of neutral observer, you come to the Bible with certain assumptions. You would assume going into it, well, the God of Abraham is a jealous God, and and you know, 
if it comes to idolatry, he's going to be really, really furious. And a lot of people have the misconception that the 40 years of the wilderness or 38 years of, of extra wandering in the wilderness is because of the golden calf, um, which it isn't. It is, of course, because of the spies. Right. And actually, you know, also in the Jewish tradition, the, the, the golden calf is associated with the 17th of Tammuz, you know, a minor fast day, whereas the spies is the establishment of Tisha B'Av, the night of Av, a major 25-hour fast day. So it's extraordinary to think that actually God is prepared to kind of forgive the idolatry side. But when it comes to the land of Israel, he's not prepared to, to forgive that, or at least not with, with, without exacting some major punishment. Which I think gets us to a deeply important insight that you aroused about Judaism in general, which is that Judaism makes no sense without Israel. Exactly. The, the point of Israel is not to escape anti-Semites. The point of Israel is to create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and in so doing, to become a light unto the nations, and so others want to follow God in whatever way they find God. That's wow. the point. So it makes sense that the great sin would be the sin against Israel, because there's no point to Judaism, and therefore there's no point to the relationship between God and the Jewish people without a strong Israel. That's absolutely central, completely indispensable. That's the point. So God, as you pointed out, he can forgive and even overcome the great sin, and it is a great sin of idolatry. When it comes to slandering the land, I got nothing to work with, guys. That's what he's saying. He said, if you're not going to love the land, if you're not going to sacrifice for the land, if you're not going to fulfill the covenant and go conquer the land, I have nothing to work with. We have nothing to talk about. I'm going to make my relationship with the next generation. Exactly. And you, and you see it in the language when they say they want to go back to Egypt. What does it mean to go back to Egypt? It means to enslave yourself, to go into bondage you know, to Pharaoh. Whereas the Bible speaks, um, you know, about the, the the Israelites and the Jewish people as being servants to God, um, using the same the same Hebrew word for servant and slave is, is the same. Right. So you know, you have a choice. Basically, you can be servants to to Pharaoh and to the hubris of man and a life with 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 no meaning, or you can, in in, in you know the Jewish worldview or the biblical worldview, you can serve God instead and have a life of meaning. And that service, exactly as you say, has to take place in the land of Israel. That is the whole point. Right. So um, just uh, switching topics for a bit, tell us a little bit about your book. <laughs> the book is about the, uh, the phenomenon of tikkun olam, which is uh, obviously very popular, particularly in American Judaism. Now, yeah, so what does tikkun olam mean? So tikkun olam literally, literally means kind of repair the world or more poetically heal the world, hence, you know, hence the title of the book. But what it's come to denote is social justice. In, in my view, and I think in, in, in you know, the view of plenty of its uh, uh, propagators as well, is essentially uh, left-wing politics in a nutshell. You, know, you think of the, the, the kind of politicians who talk about social justice and those who don't. You think of the kind of policies, political policies that people associate with Kunalam and, and social justice and, uh, and, and those that we don't. And they'll tend to be invariably on the political left and sometimes on the radical left. Now, the purpose of my book is to show not that there is any particular issue with those politics. Thank God we live in, you know, in, in, in democratic countries and everyone's entitled to their political view and, and uh, our countries thrive precisely because we can have those debates. The question is, does Judaism mandate these politics? Does Judaism mandate social justice, obligate us to engage in this tikkun olam or not? And, and the answer that the book finds is, is no, that there is no basis for that contention, um, that t uh, this understanding of tikkun olam as social justice has no basis in traditional Judaism. Tikkun olam appears, the phrase appears in, in a bunch of different places. Nowhere does it mean social justice. Nowhere does it have these sorts of political overtones or, or, or obligations attached to it. And it's also never been remotely a central concept in Judaism at all. Unlike today, where, where, where so many people think that it is sort of a mitzvah, a commandment, 
the central tenet even of Judaism, it's never had that sort of authority at all. In fact, Tikkun Olam doesn't appear a single time in the entire Bible, which is extraordinary because, you know, every single other major idea in Judaism from the election of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, as we've been discussing, to the Messiah, to the giving of the Torah, to the creation of the world, the festivals, the Sabbath, and so on. All of this stuff, of course, appears in the Bible. And uh, yet Tikkun Olam doesn't at all. Um, so that, you know, that is already something that should give people pause for thought. Right. Now, of course, the, um, the most commonly used expression in the Bible is love the stranger. But there are many ways to politically believe one is discharging that responsibility from the right or from the left or from the center. And there are many ways to do it. Perhaps the most important ways to do it are not political at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there's absolutely no question that um, Judaism uh, does sort of traditional Judaism and halakha, uh, Jewish law, mandate that Jews care for one another and for non-Jews. Um, you know, there's no question that the Jewish and Gentile naked should be clothed, the Jewish and Gentile na- uh, hungry should be fed, the Jewish and Gentile uh, homeless should be sheltered. There's absolutely no, no question of that. The question is, is about politics. What's interesting about the, the, the point about the stranger, the ger, as it's called in, uh, in, in Hebrew, is, you know, who is the stranger? And, th- and this actually comes back to, to our, our conversation about the land of Israel. The Torah is, in a sense, a constitution for one people living in its land under God. That, that is what the Torah is designed for. And Jews living in the diaspora, in, in exile, this is, theologically speaking, you know, an adverse condition. This is not where the Jews ultimately are supposed to be. This is not what the Torah has, has, has in mind, right? And this is different from saying that every Jew needs to make Aliyah immediately. That's a, you know, that's a different point. But theologically, ultimately, in the worldview of Judaism, Judaism is meant to be done in the land of Israel. There are even some um, you know, medieval rabbis who say that no commandments can properly be performed outside of the land of Israel. They, that, that, that all that we do outside of the land of Israel is really just practice, you know, practice for being Jewish in the land of Israel, ultimately. But, but he, even in the Bible, there are the Gadites and the Reubenites in Numbers 32, who are the two tribes who ask Moses' permission to settle outside the land. And the deal that Moses made with them is you can settle outside the land for essentially economic reasons, but you guys better be deeply committed Zionists and you better support the Jewish state and the Jewish people in the land of Israel in every way. And they said, absolutely, we will be your shock troops. Yeah, absolutely. And they, and they, you know, they have to come into the land and help everyone else. There are the other tribes settle the land first. And actually it's Reuben and Gad on, on the other side of the River Jordan who are the first to go into exile. And it's thought, you know, obviously leaving aside the, 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 the precise kind of military logistics of the whole thing, that, that in a deeper sense, it's because they are further away from the core. You know, they, they are further away from the land of Israel, from the heart of the land of Israel, leaving aside what the, you know, the, the ultimate borders and so on of, of a messianic Israel are and, and, and what have you. Um, but they are ultimately further away from, from the core by being on the other side of the river. And they are the ones that, that, we, that we sort of lose first, you know, in, 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 the, series of, in the series of biblical exiles. So moving from um, one text, uh, the Bible, to um, another text, uh, your book, To Heal the World, which, of course, is available on Amazon and everywhere else books are sold. Um, let's move to a third text. And this is always the uh, concluding question. And the third text is um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews, then had become a parish priest. So I said to the man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, he said, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. 
So Jonathan, in your years as an attorney, but even more so as a uh, Jewish public intellectual who's contributed to so many important magazines and has written this important book, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Oh my goodness. That's a very big question. Well, I'll give you at least one, but I think there is, there is some good in everyone that we encounter. Um, there is something that we can learn from everyone that we encounter. And we get very tied up in, uh, in ideologies and particularly kind of political ideologies and so on. And I think that's sadly particularly true at the moment. Um, it's very difficult for people to speak to one another from different, you know, from different places. And I think it's important to recognize that in all of the political ideologies that people hold and, and the cultural worldviews that people have, there is some truth in all of them. That's why they resonate with people. Right. That's why they resonate with people. And I think it's important that we all try to get out of our rigidity a bit and try to learn uh, what there is to learn from the others. That's not to say that we throw up our hands and we don't, we don't, bo- don't bother having a debate. I mean, you know, my book is absolutely a part of that, a part of that debate. Um, we absolutely have to have that debate. That's how we, that's how we progress and that's how we learn. But, you know, we need to do it with, with the humility that there is what to be learned from others. We don't have all of the truth on, on one side and all of falsehood on the other side. So, that I think is really important for, for, for people to take. And, and certainly in the world of kind of ideas and the world of polemic and the world of politics and so on, I think it's important to come with that, with that humility. And a lot of that humility can come from religion, from, from, from precisely this kind of learning, this kind of honest encounter with, with, with the texts uh, of this, the text of our tradition, but of course others have texts in, in, in their traditions as well. And that can ground us. And I mean, one of the bugbears that I had with, you know, in, in, in my book is how people try to fit these texts and these traditions into their pre-existing politics. And that means that you don't, you're not learning that kind of humility and, 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 and other core lessons from these texts if you already presume what they have to say. Um, if you, you know, you really think you know what they have to teach you. Well, and, and, uh, right. If you're arguing a side and then you turn to the text as, a, as, as some really good evidence supporting your side. Yes, and particularly, obviously, if it doesn't actually happen to do that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, but absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, it's such an interesting insight. I mean, imagine if we, uh, it's so easy to look at somebody with whom we disagree, even profoundly, and to find the things that we think are wrong. That's easy. But imagine if, as you say, we looked at someone with whom we disagree profoundly and then challenged ourselves. Let me find the truth in what he's saying. Even if it's hard to find, even if it's just a little bit, let me find the truth. It's got to be there. Let me find it. I mean, how much different the conversations we have and the dialogue we have and the culture that we all share would be. Exactly. Exactly. Now, are, are these issues as pronounced in England as they are in the United States? Because your description would fit the United States very well. I think it's probably more, I mean, look, it's applicable everywhere, but the, the, um, the kind of um, extremism, if you will, of, of sort of um, ideology, particularly now, I think is greater in America than it is, than it is in other countries. And look, I mean, that does come with benefits. You know, American elections, you know, do put two worldviews before the electorate and they decide between them. There are genuine choices in a way that in plenty of other countries, that's not necessarily been, been, been the case um, in recent decades where, you know, you sort of have a kind of the sort of amorphous center 
if you will, and and you know, there's that slight you know deviations or variations on 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 the same theme that you get, you know, that you have a, a, as your choices on the ballot. Um, whereas in America, that's traditionally not been the case. You really have different choices, and that's you know that's a wonderful thing. But on the other hand, of course, when that dialogue gets, I don't want to say kind of extreme, but uh, people get too much into their own kind of hole, their own space, their own echo chamber, and of course, social media, I think, has has has. Uh, Amplified that in a, in a in a terrible way for all its you know for all its other um, uh, virtues. I think it's made the situation even worse. People are only interested in speaking to people who already agree with them, and so on. And that's not really a way to 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 advance. But uh, we're all guilty of it. I'm I'm as much guilty of it as 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 the next person. But uh, at least if we have a sense of of what might be the right way forward, then we can at least have something to strive for, even if we fail. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation and uh, for coming on The Rabbi's Husbands and for um, sharing your ideas and for uh, talking about uh, this magnificent passage from uh, Numbers that uh, is spoken of all too infrequently. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.